It's another edition of Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager, Gord Whitehead, retired broadcaster along for the ride. Something a little different this week, Ron. We're going to talk about wine, and it's, uh, it's an area that we're both very passionate about because we both like it. Uh, maybe I like it a little bit more than you do. <laughs> well, you have far more expertise in wine than I do, Gord. My expertise involves looking at the cork, figuring out how to get it out of the bottle, and pouring it into a glass. But, uh, I mean, you've, you've, uh, you've got a wine cellar. Uh, you've spent a lot of time studying. I believe you're a sommelier. You've got, um, you know, you've sold wine for years. So you have considerable expertise. So we're actually going to flip the table today. Instead of Gord asking me the questions, now that he's the expert, I'm going to be asking him the questions, and I'm going to quite enjoy sitting back and listening to the show. So why don't we get right into it? Okay, before and, uh, we, before we can a person really profit investing in fine wine, or are they literally something that you should just drink and enjoy? Like as one of my friends who's a wine connoisseur says, he prefers to take a corkscrew and monetize his investment by consuming it immediately. Okay, for full disclosure, right off the bat, I am not a full-time, I am not a full sommelier. I did, after I retired from broadcasting, I took sommelier's training, but I did not get to the diploma level uh, because of the advice of my instructor who told me not to bother. He said, you're not going to make a living doing this. I mean, I was retired. So I went to work in a really good quality wine store and with my instructor and with some other friends of mine, and I learned a lot on the job. Let me put it that way. So I do have formal training. I understand about agriculture and varietals and soils and vinification and all that kind of stuff, but I am not a sommelier, all right? I just want to clarify that. Now, about as an investment, if you want to have wine in a cellar and save it, that's fine. But Ron, the, the challenge here is it's difficult to sell if you aren't licensed to do so. You can get yourself in a lot of hot water. So there's some private equity funds, for example, especially in Europe, where they're buying rare wines and they're, and they're selling them. I guess that would be a route for people. But here again, uh, Gord, if, you're, you know, if you buy a, a bottle of wine that's immature, and you you put it away for 10, 15 years, so all of a sudden it becomes this lovely wine. And maybe you bought it for $20 bottle, dollars a bottle, and if you go online, it might be 100 or $200 a bottle. Well, you're, you're not trading wines, but you're certainly having the opportunity to, it, to enjoy your hobby. It's costing you a lot less than if you're going into the stores and you're buying these rare wines. Wouldn't that be right? Well, yeah, very few $20 bottle of wines are going are gonna to get 15 years of aging out of them. I just want to clarify that. But if you get to a price point where you are buying a wine that is collectible because it's young and it has maturing to do, uh, yeah, you can. the value of that wine is going to go up. Like if you collect old Bordeaux, let's say, from France, they can go through the ceiling as far as price is concerned. But if you wanted to sell them to somebody, that becomes a complicated issue. I just want to be clear about that. But if you're doing yeah. it strictly for the enjoyment and for, you know, sitting down with a, a bottle of wine with your friends and saying, you know, I've had this in my cellar for 22 years or whatever the number is, and I'm going to open it, this should be a real treat. So that's, that's the way that you get that enjoyment. 
Now, what makes some wines go up in value while others simply don't? I think basically it's just supply and demand. I mean, if you have a good vintage year, if if the crops are good in whatever country you happen to fancy, let's say you want to collect French wines, which a lot of people do, and they have a good a good vintage where all of the characteristics are in place and that wine's got a lot of great potential down the road, then it's going to go up in price because there's just not that much of it made. They only make a finite amount every year, right? There's only so many cases and so many casks that get produced, and when it's gone, it's gone. Kind of like whiskey in that respect, too. <laughs> yeah. So what are the characteristics of wines that have historically shown consistent appreciation? As, as you said in our earlier remarks, you know, don't expect to buy just any bottle of $20 wine or, or even wine in that, category, in that price point and expect 15 years from now that you're going to end up with a $1,000 bottle of wine. So what are the characteristics of wine that... Uh, have historically shown the most consistent price appreciation. Well, let's say that you go into a store, and in the store that I worked at, Vines in Edmonton, you'll see often a rating on a wine. You know, anything, we always used to try to bring in wines that were 90 points plus. You go on a 100-point scale, and there are a lot of really, really famous wine critics. Robert Parker comes to mind, James Halliday. There's a whole raft of them. Publications like Wine Spectator that has a stable of people who review wines, and they'll go to the wine shows in France and Italy, and they will test these wines, the new vintages, and they have very sophisticated palates. And I don't know how they do it because if you if you try a young new growth Bordeaux wine or a young new growth, let's say Barolo from Italy, they're so tannic. I don't know how they get around what it is that's going to show spectacular results down the road. I've never quite been able to understand that with my limited abilities. But if they if they identify a great vintage, they'll say this this thing is going to be spectacular in 15 years. It's got a cellaring potential of, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 years or whatever. But you have to store that wine properly in order for those results to unfold. So, what is it about the characteristics? It's it's quality. That's what it is. If it's a if it's a reputable maker, if it's a famous house, as they say, then you've got a pretty good chance that that wine's going to re- produce spectacular results somewhere down the road. And so it seems like a lot of these wines that re- that you see that have the most spectacular appreciation, and also the ones that t- seem to uh, age the best. Why are they? Why do they tend to be European wines in general, and French wines in particular? And why are they so preferred among wine connoisseurs? Well, I guess, really, Ron, what it comes down to is they've been making them a long time. You know, you, you could get into some pretty good arguments with some of the people I know. Uh, I, I think the French definitely lead the way in that regard, but I've got some friends that, that feel that some of the best wines in the world these days are French grapes that are growing in Italy. <laughs> That's uh, That one will rage on and on. But, you know, like you take a wine like Romani Conti, which is a Burgundian wine, I think it still holds its place as the most expensive wine in the world. It may drop off every once in a while, but it certainly has its own place. It's a very small production winery in Burgundy that 
was developed hundreds and hundreds of years ago by the monks. They went there and they looked and they said, boy, look at the way that the snow melts here in the spring and the sun hits that hill and the soil is the right composition. We should plant our vines right there. And that's what they did. And they produce great quality wine. It's very, very small production and very, very expensive. But you get areas in Burgundy, you get areas in Bo- <coughs> excuse me, areas in Bordeaux where the same thing happens. You get areas in Spain that produce great wines, the Riojas, some of the really well-made Spanish wines, great German wines, the Rieslings, great Australian wines, some of the Shirazes made down in, uh, in Australia, like Grange. They just continually go through the roof. South America, Chile, and, and Argentina are starting to produce really high-quality wines that can go you know, really up the ladder as far as price is concerned. Even here in Canada now, uh, there are a lot of wine critics who are starting to pay a lot more attention to what's going on in parts of the Niagara Peninsula and out in the Okanagan. The U.S. with their, their Cabernet Sauvignons from California and, and some of the great Pinot Noir. And there's, there's great areas all over the world, but the French and the Italians and the Spanish have been at it for a long time, and it gives them an edge, I think. So the big dollars seem to be attracted to red wine. And why is that? And in a subsequent question you can inform our listeners on is what varietals of grape attract the greatest have attracted the greatest appreciation? Well, red wines have four components in them. You have fruit, alcohol, acid, and tannins. Tannins are those things that make your tongue stick to your teeth or to the roof of your mouth. You know, like if you took a cup of tea and you put, say, three red rose tea bags in one cup and let it sit for 20 minutes and took a sip of it, there'd be a lot of tannins there. Tea has high tannic content. So tannins often are, I I often say this to people, if you open a bottle of wine that you've been aging for a while and you decant it, when you get to the bottom, you see that sludge that's in there? That's tannins that have settled out of the wine. So you want those four components to all be in harmony. You don't want too much fruit. You don't want too much alcohol. You don't want too much acid. You don't want too many tannins. You want them in balance so that they're harmonized. And those wines that are able to do that are the ones that really continually rise in price. White wines, on the other hand, only have three components. They don't have tannins. There might be minute traces in there, but usually it's alcohol, acid, and fruit. And in a white wine, you want a high acid content because that will give it the ability to age a little bit longer. White wines don't tend to age nearly as long as red wines as a generalization, but you can keep them in your cellar for some years and they will get better with age. And grapes... So is, if you're a person that's a, a bit of a, a neophyte in this area and you wanted to learn more about wine, where would you go? What resources would you recommend that would help people just become more literate on the subject? Well, I, you know, I, I mentioned Wine Spectator. It's a publication that's been around for a long time. They, they write great articles. They travel all over the world. They visit great wineries. They visit startup wineries. They talk about award-winning wines. They, they have an, an issue every year that rates the top 100 wines in the world in their estimation. That's a good place to go if you want to buy a magazine. I think you can also find it online. If you want some formal training, uh, when I took my training, I went through something called ISG, the International Sommeliers Guild, which I'm not sure if it's even still operating, to be fully honest with you, Ron. But there is another organization called WSET, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and they offer courses, and you can become a sommelier through taking 
those courses. I think, uh, for instance, here at Alberta, I, I looked, and they're only offering courses now in Calgary. There's nobody teaching them in Edmonton, but I don't think there's any ability to take that course online, Ron, because one of the key components of taking sommelier's training is tasting wines. And as you go along, you, you learn to identify different grapes, different varietals, uh, spoiled wines, faulted wines, things of that nature. So I think you'd have to be taking that training in person. There's a world of information out there. If you go to Google and you type in French wines, well, you could spend the rest of your life looking at the information that's going to come up yeah. there. So there's lots of avenues to to get more knowledge. And I, and I want to digress. You asked me about varietals, what ones seem to be the ones that appreciate the most. Cabernet Sauvignon is a big one. The French grape is one of the components of Bordeaux wines. All of the, all of the wines, or the grapes rather, that go into Bordeaux wines, any of the Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Petit Verdot, they're all very interesting varietals individually, but collectively they make spectacular wines in Bordeaux. If you go into Spain, the Tempranillos, which we talked about in the Rioja area, or Grenache, make terrific wines. The single varietals can be exciting. When they're blended together, they get more complex and equally more interesting. Uh, Chile is growing all kinds of different grapes. Uh, our, you know, Australia grows Shiraz, which is Syrah, just their name for it. Syrah comes from the Rhone Valley in, in France, and they make great Syrahs in the Rhone Valley. It's one of the key ingredients of, uh, excuse me, of Chateau Neuf de Pop, which is a wine that a lot of people know. So there's so much to learn. Do some online research. Type in all of those different grape varietals on Google and do some reading, and you'll learn a lot. So let's talk about storing wine. Can you walk us through what a good wine cellar looks like? And just give us some basic tips on storing wine properly. So if you get a great bottle and you're putting it away for a while, that when you finally uncork it, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be the best it can be. Well, the thing about, uh, about wine cellars is that y you can spend an awful lot of money <laughs> on a wine cellar uh, constructing it and then a whole bunch more money putting wine in it. I just want to point that out. But you don't have to get really elaborate. I, I've seen some wine cellars that are spectacular, lots of glass and, you know, shelving and, and expensive woods and all that sort of thing. Uh, my home, what I did is I had an area down my basement when I was developing it with an outside wall. And I thought, you know, this is going to be cold. It's going to be cold enough for me to store wine because you don't want wine. You don't want wine in a warm area if you're going to, if you're going to store it for any length of time. So the, the optimal temperatures anywhere between about 8 or 9 degrees Celsius and about 14, maybe 15 degrees Celsius. You don't want to go beyond that window. So if you can keep it in that temperature range, and if you store it horizontally, like you want to lay the bottles down. I've always wondered when you go into some wine stores and you see so many of them standing up, there's been this raging debate for years about corks getting dry. And when the cork gets dry, it shrinks and it lets air in. And air is a big enemy of wine because wine is a living organism. That's why that cork is in there. As soon as you pull it, the wine starts to oxygenate and it opens up. But, you know, when you open a bottle of wine and you leave it sitting on the counter and you get up the next morning and maybe you taste it and it's kind of funky, that's because it's over-oxygenated. It's gone over the edge. It's not any good to you anymore. So storage is, is key. You want to have good temperature. You don't want too much light. That's why wine's in dark bottles as a rule, is to keep the light out. And you want enough humidity in there 
If you have a real high-end wine cellar, people put humidifiers or dehumidifiers in them. Some people just simply put a dish full of water in there to keep the humidity up. If the room's well-sealed to keep the temperature under control, the humidity will keep your labels from curling and drying out and also keep the corks from drying out. So you don't have to spend a fortune to do it. As I said, I, you know, mine, mine doubles as a cold room, too. My wife is big into preserving things, and so we've got some canned goods down there that she's done, and we've got our wine stored in there as well. You know, as a, a person, if they have a, well, let's say they, they start a hobby, and maybe they start with $1,000 for a wine collection, where would you start, Gord? Well, that's a, that's a tough one, Ron, because it all, I think, comes down to personal choice. If, if there's a type of wine that you really like, let's say you're a big fan of Aussie wines. And for, uh, I'm going to say, probably a good 10 to 15 years, Australian wines had a huge share of the market here in Canada. They were very, very popular. They've somewhat fallen out of favor because so many other regions have improve their winemaking skills, I guess, that were lesser known. I think of countries like Chile and Argentina, uh, the New Zealand wines, you know, some great wines coming out of New Zealand, still great wines out of Australia too. But if you have something that you like, that's the one you want to focus on. So if you're an Aussie fan, you want to buy good Shirazes, let's say. You might want to buy some Cabernet Sauvignons from Australia, but you do that with a cautionary note attached. Uh, I found that uh, some of the cabs that I've tasted out of Australia, I, I have a reasonably good palate. It's getting a little weaker as I get old. That happens to all of us. But I often can, can detect that just that hint of eucalyptus in, in, in Australian Cabernet Sauvignons, the reason being that they have eucalyptus trees all over the place down there. And they get their roots down into the soil and maybe some of the roots intermingle with the vines. I'm not sure what happens, but you know, some people find that a little off-putting. Um, I think of Riesling wines out of Germany. We don't see the really good Rieslings. The German keeps those, Germans keep those for themselves, I think, maybe a little closer to home in Europe. But you can still buy good German Rieslings here, and they will age for some time because they got good high acidic content and lots of fruit. So pick the wine that you like, the taste and the flavors that you like. And obviously, price point comes into it. So, you know, what's a, what's a price point to start a collectible wine? That's open to debate. I would say you're probably in that $40 up range, maybe $50 and up. Anything below that is what we call trunk aging. <laughs> you, you buy it, you put it in the trunk, you get home and you take it out and you drink it. Not to say that there aren't some wines that will fall into the category that you can age under that price point, but they're few and far between. So if you could invest in any wine right now uh, for future potential, is there anything that you'd be particularly looking at that might be undervalued that uh, could represent a good buy and maybe a taste treat 10 years down the road? You know, there's a, a couple of wine producers out in the Okanagan. If you get done on, on the Naramata bench on the, uh, the east side of Lake Okanagan, down on the Penticton area, there's a couple of wineries up there. I'm not going to mention particular names because I don't think that's fair to all the other producers. But if you do your research and go and do some tasting, uh, there are a couple up there that I, you know, I would be inclined to maybe buy a little bit of their wine and store it for the next five to 10 years and see how it turns out. Certainly, you're never going to go wrong buying a good French wine if you buy a good Bordeaux. Bordeaux can be very expensive. They can be $1,500, $2,000 a bottle. So you it's kind of a limited market there. 
because those are the premier the premier wines of Bordeaux, but they have what they call first, second, third, fourth growths. If you get into the third growth, you can probably find something in that sixty to a hundred dollar range that if you want to lay a Bordeaux down, it's probably going to get better. One of my big favorites, and, and this is my sentimentality showing through, I'm a big Barolo fan uh, out of Italy. You can buy a good Barolo and lay that down for 10 or 20 years, and it just gets so much better with age. And a, and a bottle of Barolo starts in that 60 to $65 range. The, the sky is the limit, though. If you want to get really good wine, if you buy an expensive bottle of wine like a, a U.S. Cab, that's only, say, three or four years old and has the potential to age for the next 10 to 15 years, you're probably starting somewhere in that $75 and up range because of the difference in the dollar. It gets a little more expensive. So, you know, you're limited by your budget and by your imagination. Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's end by just talking about, uh, you know, we, we, we all know where to buy wine. And uh, there are regulations in Canada which restrict you from selling it. Maybe you can talk a, about that just for a minute. Yeah, it's it, you get a liquor license for a reason. <laughs> That's to sell liquor. And wine falls into that category. Uh, I know anecdotally of uh, a couple, uh, a man and his wife, that uh, this was in a little bit of a different situation. They had something that they'd bought a lot of, hoping to speculate on it and sell it. It didn't go quite the way they wanted. They actually went down into Montana, and they were trying to sell it out the back of a truck. And some boys from the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms police came along, and they're in jail. Like, they got fined, and they're in jail. So, you know, it's, it's pretty harsh here in Canada, too. Like, there are some really, really hefty fines if you get caught selling liquor without a license. Bootlegging, right? That's what it is. Um, so you got to be cautious there. I mean, I know people that trade wine back and forth with friends and they, and they do it on the down low, right? They're not, they're not in it to make money. They might profit a little bit if they sell a bottle of wine to a buddy that they've been sitting back and the buddy wants that bottle of wine and he's willing to pay a little extra money for it. I, I guess the, probably the government would look the other way, but if they found out about it, they would frown upon it. So Lots of places to get wine. We all know there are liquor stores everywhere. There are online sellers of wines as well, uh, like Vivino automatically pops to mind. They're a, a big procurer of wine, and they sell it to, online to people, and it gets delivered to your home. But uh, it's an area you've really got to exercise some caution in, Ron, uh, you know, because technically it's against the law to sell it without a license. Well, Gord, I found this show, as like I previously said, intoxicating. We've got some interesting stuff coming up. We've got shows on Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to have some shows on demographics and why they're in, so important to investing. Uh, we're going to be looking at other sectors of the economy. So, you know, let, go to letsmakemoney.ca and you'll find a complete catalog of our webinars and uh, the Making Money Minute shows that I do. And so there's lots of information there if you're willing to learn. So we'll look forward to seeing you next week. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.